Everybody is seeking, in some way, happiness in life. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, even in our, embedded in our Constitution is the pursuit of happiness. Uh, we don't seek, you know, unless you're an abnormal person, you don't seek to live life and just be miserable. You know, we want to be happy. We want to uh, be content. We want to feel like life has purpose and life has meaning. But where Scripture often pushes back, and especially the uh, teachings of Jesus, is where, where do we seek the source of that happiness? Where do we cha- what do we chase after in order for, to find that fulfillment in our life, to find that satisfaction? We generally, humans, you know, we pursue it in a career, in our financial goals, and maybe a, a relationship, maybe in uh, more negative ways and things that are destructive that we think are going to numb us and make us happy in the midst of our misery, whatever it is. The source is what always Jesus is pushing back on is what is the source of your joy? What is the source of your happiness? What is the source of your contentment and satisfaction? The Bible, uh, I believe most would agree, makes it clear that the only true source of happiness is found in God and more specifically in a relationship through and in the Lord Jesus Christ. David wrote in Psalm 16:11. These won't be on the screen, but he said, "In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore." Jesus told his disciples later in John 15, "These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. My joy, my and again, the joy that the scripture speaks of is not kind of a, a giddy happiness, you know, you, you slam a hammer down on your hand and you just laugh and say, praise God. Listen, something's wrong with folks that have that kind of concept. You know, I'm sorry, you know, and <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. It's not saying you're not, you don't walk and deal with, with issues of life, but the joy that the Bible speaks of, Paul in Philippians speaks quite a bit about the joy of the Lord, is a joy that is not altered by outward circumstances. Did you hear what I said? It is a joy, it is a sense of placement in God that is unchanging regardless of what's going on around us or to us or through us. And that's something only God can provide. Well, you know, in our study, the verse that we mention just about every Sunday in John 20, 31, which tells us the reason why John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, wrote what we refer to as the Gospel of John. He said, these things are written, meaning all that previously uh, he wrote, but he tells the, the reason at the end, these things are written with a purpose. As the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he has a purpose that they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then secondly, that by believing that you may have life in His name. So if we have life in His name and we, have in his, we are in Christ, then the contentment, the joy, the fulfillment, if you will, should be that which accompanies the believer. It's part of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So based upon on that, I, I, can't, I remembered a quote from uh, one of my favorite authors. You hear me mention A.W. Tozer a lot. And in his classic little book called The Pursuit of God, pointed out that uh, in the beginning of that book, The Pursuit of God, He points out that before a man can seek God, God must first have sought that person. And as Paul says in Romans 3.11, he said that there are none who seek after God. And Tozer adds, listen, we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us 
that spurs us to the pursuit. In shorthand, Tozer is saying that we only pursue God because God came after us. Our, we can't get credit for our pursuing God. We can't get credit for our knowing God. God sought us first. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 55, verse 6 through 7, tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake, abandon his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord. Now there's a paradox we're going to find in John chapter 6 because the Bible is clear that we should seek God, we should pursue God. Uh, Jesus exhorts us to come to Him. But there's an interesting paradox that we won't necessarily dig into today, but uh, we will look at uh, maybe in uh, uh, next week or the week thereafter. But it's in John 6, 44. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can, no one can, it's not on the screen, no one can come to me. The word can speaks of ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And literally, the way that that word is used in other places is if the Father drags him. So, you have this paradox in Scripture that we are told to seek God, and yet, on the other hand, it's God who seeks after us. Now, this seeking after God is not a, a one-time thing. There's some that think, well, because I've committed my life to Christ and I'm saved, that's it. And in one sense, that is it. I mean, that, you're not earning it. You're not earning more. But that's only the beginning because if you want to remember the, you know, we are justified, we are being justified, and we will be justified. The threefold path of the believer speaks about justification, sanctification, and glorification. Glorification is when after we die and we uh, are resurrected with Christ and receive new bodies, and uh, that's the glorification part. But we're in, as a believer, we're in this sanctification period. We've been set apart by Christ, but there's also the process that we are growing, or should be growing, more and more into the likeness of Christ. Where the gospel saves us, the gospel keeps us saved, and the gospel ultimately will save us. So it's the gospel in this work of sanctification that we're applying as we seek after God, and that in that seeking God that we find the joy and the present in the presence of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, you see, remember Paul uh, in, uh, when he wrote in Philippians? By the way, this is just all setting up where we're going. Um, in Philippians, he said, you know, all those things I've done in my past, he said, I count it all as a bunch of garbage. In fact, he uses a much stronger word that I won't use, but in the original... Uh, basically, to put it nicely, he said, it's all a bunch of dunghill. It's a dunghill. Okay? And he said, even though when he wrote that, he had already been walking with Christ some 25 years, but he still said, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ. Some of us here today need to be reminded that we are called to press on in Christ. To quote Tozer again, he said this. He said, come near in encouraging us to pursue God. He said, come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for Him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for Him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found Him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking, and then he says this, complacency, complacency is a deadly foe for all spiritual growth. Our, my job here is to encourage the flock to continue in their walk with Christ, 
to continue and encourage you in the word, to continue moving towards Christ and to make sure that your joy, your satisfaction, your contentment, your pursuit, if you will, is anchored in the unchangeability. Theologians would say the immutability of God that never fluctuates, that never changes, that never alters. We are continually growing and grounding ourselves in this growth and pursuit. Now, I said that as a backdrop because when we come to John chapter 6, verse 24, you see that this is not the case with this crowd that we've been looking at in John chapter 6. John 6, 24 says, So when the crowd saw that Jesus was there, nor his disciples, or I'm sorry, when they saw that he was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves, this crowd, got into the boats and went to Capernaum. They're crossing over, seeking after Jesus. Remember, Jesus told the disciples last week, we looked at this, you know, get in the boat, I'll meet you on the other side. And of course, we had that in between there where the account of Jesus walking on the water, that amazing demonstration of the power and, uh, of Christ. And so the morning after the miracle... You can imagine the crowd is even swelling even more because there's people that weren't part of that first miracle and they want to get in on what this thing is doing. And they went to go after and look for Jesus, but guess what? He's gone. Elvis has left the building. All right? He's gone. Uh, the disciples aren't there. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're like, what, what's going on? And they go in this frenzy of trying to pursue and come to the realization that he's on the other side in Capernaum. Capernaum, if you look in your map there, the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And when they find him, they ask him a question in verse 25. That's just setting this up a little bit. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you come here? Now, how Jesus answers them is interesting. Can you imagine? Here they are all jazzed up on either experiencing this miracle or hearing about the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. And he said, oh, I just walked across the water to get here. Can you imagine what they would think when they heard that? Well, he didn't do that. But instead, he confronted them. And last week, we spent a little time talking about how Jesus is always seemingly... Uh, not kind of following the script, if you will, that the disciples kind of thought he should do. Because remember the mindset, and we're going to see this a little bit even more today, the mindset of the world, the Jewish culture, was an expectation of the Messiah, but they had a different expectation of what this Messiah should be like. They expected a Messiah that was not going to suffer and die. Remember Peter even said, no way, you're not going to do that on my watch. And Jesus rebuked him. They didn't have a concept of that picture that was in the Old Testament. They had formulated that this concept of the Messiah that was to come was going to be a political Messiah. It was going to be a military Messiah. It was going to be one who was going to lead Israel back to the glory and the uh, pride of King David and the, and the kingdom of Israel. That was who they were looking for. And so you remember their response, and we did this last week, after he multiplied the bread and the fish and fed what many people easily could guesstimate could be, even though it says 5,000, could be up to 10,000. Uh, if you add the, the women and children and, and those that normally weren't uh, accounted for in some of the records... They wanted to make him king. In fact, he withdrew when he, he got away from them. When he found out that they wanted to take him and make him king by force. Why? Because he fed their bellies. Not because he was God of very God. Not because he was the son of God. Not because they said, you are, as Peter said, you know, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. No, 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 no. He fit their false expectation that he was going to be one that was going to keep them in a perpetual state 
of prosperity, food, and the military and the domination and the recapitulation of Israel back into power was just that was that was just days ahead. That was their expectation. And Jesus quickly dispels them of that false understanding. So Jesus, after they asked that question in verse 25, uh, Jesus did not answer that question, but he confronted them, confronted really their false idea of their concept of Messiah. And that's where we will find ourselves as we look this morning. And again, taking a negative, I'm going to make it a positive. Last week was, why do you follow Jesus? And so this week is seeking, the title of the message is Seeking Jesus Rightly. And that's verse 22 through 36. But before we look at that, let's pray. Father, what we know, what we do not know, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For thy son Jesus' sake we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Three ways of how to seek Jesus rightly that I would direct your attention to. In your bulletin, you have a listener's guide that hopefully makes you a little bit more engaged in getting uh, out of the message. I encourage you to use that. Number one, seek Jesus for the right reason. Seek Jesus for the right reason. Desire eternal food, not the temporal food. As I said, Jesus doesn't answer them. He actually confronts them. Verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly. That's maybe, remember in the King James, verily, verily. In the Greek, it's amen, amen. And when you see that in Scripture, it should capture attention because Jesus is getting ready to say something. I mean, everything he says is important. But when he says and begins a statement, truly, truly, verily, verily, it's, it's bold type, above the fold, neon lights. It's like, this is really, really pay attention to what I, he's saying here. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They totally missed the significance of the miracle. Remember the we taught on the lesson of the loaves. They, they totally missed it. Their minds were focused on the temporal, the material, rather than that, that which was eternal and spiritual. They wanted their stomachs filled, but they were not seeking after Jesus for who He is. The signs, what does a sign do? A sign is intended to point you somewhere. A sign is intended to give you direction, to point you to something. Here is Culver's. Here's a sign. All right, I just lost 30% of you right there. But here's a sign. Sign is meant to direct you, point you to something. The sign is not the restaurant. Oh, isn't this great? I love the sign. It tastes so good. No, the sign is merely directing you towards something. That's what the sign of the bread and the loaves is other signs that Jesus would do. Um, instead of seeing in the bread, the bread that was previous, we looked at that uh, last week and the week before, instead of seeing in the bread the sign that pointed to who Jesus was, they had seen in the sign only the bread and how it met their temporal need. They were seeking Jesus not for who He is, but for what He could do for them. And you know, there's still that mindset today. That hasn't changed. A mindset that Jesus is kind of like Aladdin's genie. You know, that we just rub it and, and he's there to bail us out of our mess. And he's there to meet whatever need we have. He's there to, you know, just kind of just, he's just kind of our little personal genie. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus will help you. Jesus will rescue you. But if your motive is only seeking after what he can give you, what he can get for you, and you're not pursuing or, or seeking him for who he is, then you're like, and you're in this crowd. 
Jesus exhorts them, verse 27, he said, do not work for the food that perishes. You see how he's making a distinction from the natural to the spiritual. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food, like food, that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, on Him, God the Father has set His seal. He's not saying go quit your job and just, you know, let God provide. No, he's making a contrast in the pursuit of the material and the natural of whatever it is that is seeking that you're seeking to find fulfillment. Jesus, remember, he said at one place, he said, "My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives." In other words, the peace of the world is temporary. The food of the world is temporary. The satisfaction of the world is temporary. But Jesus is making a contrast that if you're merely pursuing fulfillment of stuff in your life, he said there's not going to be any satisfaction. He said, but pursue the food that endures to eternal life. Notice the irony again in this. I alluded to it a little bit earlier. But Jesus is saying in this statement that we should work for this food that leads to eternal life. But at the same time, it's the Lord Jesus who gives this eternal life. Seems a little confusing. But there's a couple of things I would point out to you in a minute. We'll come back to that. A couple of things in this, in pursuing Christ. In other words, Jesus... Notice Jesus knows your motives. Jesus knows our heart. He knew what was in these people. That's the reason he could speak truth into them. He knew what their motives were. Sometimes we don't even understand our own motives. Have you ever wrestled with, I'm wrestling with something, a decision or doing something, and I'm really praying because I'm, I'm, just really wrestling and questioning, what is my motives in this? Oh, if I presented to you, I would sound very pious and very righteous in my motives. But I'm really like, what is my motive in this? Uh, what it, what it, what, why do I really want to do this? Why do I really want to pursue this? Jesus knows our motives. David in Psalm 139 even prayed. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me or test me and know my thoughts. David is saying what I think we should pray. Lord, I don't even know the depths of my own heart. I need your Holy Spirit to reveal those motives of my heart. To make sure that even though I've convinced myself that this is right. That I've convinced myself this path is right. Lord, search my own heart. You know, we can kind of justify a lot of behavior by saying, well, I prayed about it. I'm going to divorce my spouse. Well, I prayed about it and I have peace. Well, you have a false peace, my friend. Okay? I mean, we can, I mean, I've had people say what they're going to do. And, and when they say, well, the Lord told me and prayed about it. And I just say, great. I mean, I don't say great. I just say, well, counseling session's over. They're like, What? God told you, I'm not going to go against God if God told me. Well, who am I to question God? Well, I knew full well there was a bunch of malarkey, uh, you know, of what they were saying. But we have that ability to self-deceive ourselves. God, search me, know my heart. I'm sure if you ask those folks, they could give you a lot of great religious reasons of why they were seeking after Jesus. But Jesus knew their motives. Secondly, under this... Observation, Jesus gives spiritual food, and that's what he's talking about, to those who seek him properly. Again, Jesus is using the natural to illustrate the spiritual. Remember how he did that with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. What does Nicodemus do? He's not thinking spiritual, he's thinking natural. The woman at the well you know, if you ask me to give you a drink, you'll never thirst. She's like, where do I get this water, right? I mean, Jesus is always using the natural to speak to the spiritual. 
uh, he could not give us the real nutrients, the real food of what we need that brings the joy and satisfaction if he was not from God. You know, Jesus knows exactly what you need in your life. That's why we should pursue him. Jeremiah 29, 13 reminds us, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And third, and we see this in verse 27, Jesus is God's only approved source of spiritual blessing. Only approved source of spiritual blessing. Verse 27 he said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And here it is. For on Him, on Jesus, God the Father has set His seal. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm not a way. I'm not a truth. You know, everybody says, I have my truth. No, he is the way, the truth, the life. The apostles would say in Acts 4.12 that there is one name under heaven, one name by which men and women must be saved, and that's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, if you want to create a stir at the next Thanksgiving dinner, just talk about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the only way. You know, we live in a nation where we have embedded in our very founding and constitution a plurality of practice of religion. That is different that you can, you can practice and worship. If you want to worship that chair in front of you and turn it into a religion, have at it. You're free to do that. Nobody's going to put you in jail. That is not the same thing as saying that all Ways of worship are correct. The Constitution, as wonderful as that document is, is not the final word. It is the word of God that Jesus Christ is exclusively the way to the Father. And He is the only approved source because God the Father has set His seal on them. God has certified Jesus as His Agent, if you will. That's what Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses. In various times and in days past, God spoke through our forefathers, through prophets. There was different ways. Dispensationally, God worked and spoke. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Not sons. Son. Through Christ. So, seek Jesus for the right reason. Notice, secondly, seek Jesus by the right route or route, depending on where you're from. Route or route. And if you're from Virginia, it's the route. Seek Him by faith, not by works. Verse 28 and 29. Then they, the crowd, said to him in response to this, very perceptive, but yet kind of shows you where the thinking is. What must we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we be, do? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Here it is. He's going to give you the answer in verse uh, 29. This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He, God, has sent. In essence, there's really, there's no work you can do except believe in Him, the one that God the Father has sent. You see, we're saying, well, what do I need to do to be made right with God? You know, do I need to join your church? Do I need to give so much money? Do I need to work the nursery? Because that, that puts me up in a real high place. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, what do I need to do to earn and do the works of God? And it's simple. Believe that Jesus is the one that God the Father has sent to be 
the redemption of your sins for your life. So simple and yet made complex. You know, the irony here is Jesus is not saying you earn this work. That's kind of what they're saying. What do we need to do to earn this? Because we know the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Philippians 1, 29, notice the language here, for it has been granted, granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. It's a gift of God. But Jesus is saying the only work that you can do is to believe. John Calvin makes this statement, and it should be on the screen. He says, now faith, talking about faith, and when you hear faith, maybe if, if, you, if this helps you, put the word trust there. Okay, they're interchangeable. Now faith, or trust, in of itself, brings nothing to God. It's not a work. Now faith brings nothing to God, but on the contrary, faith in God places man, places a man or a woman before God as empty and poor, that he, God, that he, the man or the woman, may be filled with Christ and with His grace. Faith. Trust bestows on man no other righteousness than that which he receives from Christ. So don't think of faith and trust as some work that you do. Faith is that simple trust in believing in Christ that puts you in place to receive the fullness of God's grace and forgiveness. Seeking to be right with God by works rather than by faith alone is a common spiritual error that Christians, professing Christians, can easily fall into. They've been in church all their life. And there still is this concept of how do I earn, what do I need to do to earn my, my righteousness with God? Oftentimes when you hear in a... Um, in a uh, membership, when, when a person becomes a member, we like to hear their testimony uh, with, with an elder or a, an elder or two and just hear their testimony. And it's not trying to make sure they use the word propitiation and justification in the right order. You know, it's not that. We just want to hear, can you, in, in, a, in your own way, explain what Jesus has done in your life? And it is sometimes in those meetings and those real casual gatherings that as we listen, you come to the realization as you listen to them that they really don't understand salvation. And may, even though they're good people, they may be faithful in the church, they don't have an understanding of the gospel. Now again, I'm not trying to look for words and parsing, so it's an opportunity to, you know, ask questions. You don't want to lead people and they'll say, now is this what, yeah, yeah, that's what. No, you want them to be able to, in, in their words, say what God has done in their life in Jesus. What does it mean? What is it, I say that I'm saved, what does that mean? Can you explain that? And oftentimes how they explain that, you hear that they are equating with things that I do or continue to do, or what I don't do, as the basis of how they are in a right relationship with Christ. And so it's an opportunity maybe to, to explore that, maybe give them some things to read, so that they either come to an understanding, yes, yes, that, that helps me, or I don't have a clue, no, I've not done that, I'm, I don't know what that's like. I remember one time there was this, uh, there was this, uh, this man in our church, and he was, he was a single, tall, good-looking guy. I mean, he's a guy that when he walked into the church, whatever, all the single women just had a, had a prophetic word, you know, that he was, he was the one, you know. He was just that guy, right? And, uh, but he was a good guy, and he, had, he, he, had, he, was, he was coming to church, and he really was, had, a, had a desire to serve Christ, and, and, uh, and he pursued church membership, 
And in the membership, in that setting, different church, uh, in, that, in that session there, he was meeting with the elders, and basically through that, through that conversation, uh, they came to the conclusion that he wasn't born again. He, he was a morally decent guy. He, he loved the church. He loved the socialness of it and everything. But he, he really was basing his faith upon a, very much of a works of what I do or I don't do. There wasn't, there was, and so they used that as an opportunity, said, let's put church membership on hold. Because listen, people, that's not the most important thing in that conversation. Let's, let's explore this. Let's talk about this. And as they did... He came by the Holy Spirit to the realization that he did not have, he was not trusting solely in Christ alone. And uh, he came to the place where he did that and, and consequently uh, became a member of the church. But I remember him standing and giving testimony uh, of, of that to the church and saying that when they kind of said, well, let's hold off on this church membership, let's explore this, he said, I was really offended. He said, I've been in church a long time. I was, grew up in church. And he said, I was, he said, my initial response was, who do those people think they are? He said, but thank God they had the courage to tell me the truth. He said, because otherwise I would have continued in a false alliance of something that was not truthful or reliable. And so Jesus is pushing this back. And so to seek Jesus rightly is to seek Him by the right root. The right root is entrusting in Him and Him alone for your salvation. Nothing is more important than to seek, for, seek Christ for the life, eternal life that only He can give. Seek Him for the right reason. Seek Him by the right root, by faith and not by works. And thirdly, Seek Jesus through the right relationship. Hunger for Him. Hunger for Christ to satisfy your soul. Let's pick it up in verse 30. Now just keep in mind, one day previous, one, just one day before, this same crowd had been a part and experienced witnessed with their own eyes the miracle of the multiplication of the bread and the, the fish. And they were fed. It was a massive miracle. That was just one day before. Keep that in mind when they ask this question, verse 30. So they, the crowd, these Jewish followers, fans, said to him, just a day after this, then what sign do you do? They're asking him for a sign. What sign are you going to do? It's more of like, what kind of trick are you going to show us? So that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? I don't know about you, but if I had been a part of that mirror, that would have, that would have cinched it for me. But it shows you the disconnect with where they're at. Jesus said in verse 31. Or no, I'm sorry. They, they continued in verse 31. Our fathers, our fathers. And in verse 32, you'll see they're talking about Moses. Our fathers ate the manna. Manna was the heavenly bread that fed the Israelites in the wilderness. They ate the manna. Manna means literally in the Hebrew means what's this? <laughs> um, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. And he even quotes scripture in that kind of them. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see again, what was their expectation of Messiah? He was going to be one that was going to kind of pull the political power, the military. He was going to bring everybody into this, this wonderful place of prosperity and return the glory to the nation. So in spite of Jesus' miraculous feeding of these thousands, what are they doing? They're saying, yeah, do another one. Do something else. We're still not convinced. 
You know, Jesus, yeah, you fed a large crowd. That was pretty impressive. But Moses, he, he fed a whole nation. Jesus, you know, you did it once, but Moses did it for 40 years. You know, Jesus, you just multiplied some ordinary bread that you say some kids lunch, you know, they brought or whatever. But Moses, Moses, he gave, he gave them bread out of heaven. Moses did that. So they're saying, okay, Jesus, you gave us a little sign. It was impressive. We're, 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 we're kind of, we're getting there. Why don't you do a really big one? Like Moses did. J.C. Ryle, the quote should be on the screen in his wonderful little commentary, very readable. And again, I, I intentionally put these names and quotes before you, not to impress you, but some of you like reading and getting good books, and a lot of the people that I like to read are dead. That means they can't get into any moral trouble, they're dead, they live faithful lives. And uh, so I intentionally put the Tozers and a J.C. Ryle there. You like look it up. And, but listen to what he says about this statement. He said, and really talking about people in general too. He said, they were always deceiving themselves with the idea that they wanted more evidence. And pretending that if they had this evidence... They would believe. Some of you may be out there right now. You just say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm still seeking. I'm still looking. But it's, but it's a facade. He said thousands in every age do just the same. The plain truth is that it is a lack of heart, not lack of evidence that keeps people back from Christ. So Jesus responds by correcting them. Verse 32 and 33, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, uh-oh, here we go, here it is again, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Moses didn't do that. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God Notice how he's making the metaphor. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Moses didn't give you anything. He was only an instrument. God gave that. And God is giving you something right now in front of you. He's giving you the true bread. Which he again we know is speaking to himself. They're satisfied with the picture and not the person. They're satisfied with the temporal and not the eternal. They're, they're like those people that Paul wrote about in Colossians 1.17 that are focused on the shadow of the things to come. But Paul says, but the substance is Christ. You see the law, the Old Testament. What did we learn on uh, and remind ourselves this past Wednesday when we began in Genesis? What is the key to Genesis? The key to Genesis is Christ. In Luke 24... He began with Moses and the prophets and showed them all those things, Old Testament, all those things that pointed to himself, all those signs. What about the religious folks that concerning the birth of Christ, when Herod wanted to find out about this baby and this prophecy and all that, they had the information because they immediately brought it to Herod, but what? They weren't seeking. Some of you got lots of information about God but you have a disconnected heart that does not seek Him to find Him. In verse 34, the ESV, your version may say something different, but I think the ESV has the correct sense of the word Lord. It's not really Lord like Master. It's more respect, Sir. That's, that's, a, that's an accurate translation. They said to him, sir, not Lord, sir, respectfully. Yeah, 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 we, we, we want this bread. Give us this bread. In fact, we'll always take it. Because they wanted Jesus to be their free meal ticket. They really weren't interested. And they certainly weren't interested in what he said in verse 35. He left them with these words. 
He said, I am. That's the first of seven. Interesting, if you want to do a good study, kind of a study within a study, there's seven I am statements in the book of John. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, those who come to me and those who believe. What, what's involved coming to him? Believing in him. You need to come to Christ. You need to call to Christ. You need to believe that he and he alone is the one. You cannot, just like bread, in this culture and time, bread and water, again, are pictures of the very basic sustenance of survival. I mean, bread, I mean, that's, that's a basic food source. You can't survive without bread. When I say bread, I'm just talking about as a basic food. And you need water. And Jesus is saying, just as you can't survive without the bread and the water in this earthly life, neither will you live eternally without the true bread and the true water from heaven. Come to Christ. Believe in Christ. You see, they were seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. Maybe some of you struggle in your pursuit of God because your motives and your heart just, you know, when He doesn't fix everything to your satisfaction, you're ready to, you're ready to go. Ready to go. What did I sign up for? That doesn't work. I want, that's the reason, again, false promises by a false Messiah people will always flock to. They sought Jesus for the wrong reason. They sought Jesus by the wrong route. They were seeking Jesus by their own deeds, their own works, what they could bring. And they certainly were seeking a wrong relationship. They were extolling Moses. And here was, the Mos here was the one that Moses pointed to, right in front of them. And Jesus closes verse 36 with these words. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. I remember Jesus said a few times, one time in another place in the gospel, when he was talking about a certain city that had heard and been and seen the miracles and seen the ministry of Jesus, he said it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you in the judgment. Why? Because they had seen Jesus. They had been exposed to Jesus. They had been exposed to the truth. To whom much is given, much is required. Perhaps you're here today and you're seeking Jesus, but you're seeking Jesus with wrong motives. Or maybe you're not even seeking Jesus at all. The reality of Scripture is that every one of us is a heartbeat away from standing before God in judgment. And this morning, if you hear it from no other place, you need to see your desperate condition without Christ. There's no, there's no middle ground. I was thinking about, about the end of this message and I was thinking about how on the night of April 14, 1912, just four days after the Titanic left Southampton, England on its maiden voyage to New York, New York City, the Titanic struck an iceberg off the coast of Newfoundland and sank. I, I thought afterwards I should have had the music playing in the background. When the Titanic, listen to me, when the Titanic went down, over a thousand people went to a watery grave. Now, it was a combination of human error, an iceberg, insufficient lifeboats, frigid water that contributed to such a great historic tragedy. After the news of the Titanic tragedy reached 
the world. The challenge was how they were going to inform relatives of whether their loved ones were among the dead or the living. Imagine a day before, I mean, 1914 uh, radio, 1912 radio was, was not even really a functional use commercially. Certainly no internet, no Twitter and all the email, nothing. Imagine how, how slow that process would be and how they were going to inform the loved ones. At the office of the White Star Line, the company that had built and maintained the Titanic, at the office of the White Star Line in Liverpool, England, a huge board was set up there at their office. And on one side of the cardboard sign, it said, known to be saved. And on the other side of the cardboard sign, it said, known to be lost. And that names would be added periodically, and people would come and gather and watch for updates. When the messenger brought new information, those waiting obviously held their breath to see if their relatives, their friends, their loved ones was among the list of the saved or the lost. And here's what I want you to listen. When the travelers got on that ship, they were either first class, second class, third class. Their tickets said first class up there, you know, with all the ritzy dining, all the stuff. Second class coach, we might say today. Third class down in the lower decks. But when they died, they didn't go into eternity. First class, second class, third class. They went into eternity saved, lost. So the Certainty of death is a reality, all of us. If the rapture does not happen, we will all die. We will all die. And we'll be thrust into eternity. And irregardless of your class, your privileges, all of that in this life will mean absolutely nothing. Nothing. There will only be two categories saved and lost <laughs>